At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everyone. And here's what's ahead. Rally on. The Dow crossing above 26,000 for the first time since early March. The S&P higher for the fourth day in a row. And the Nasdaq closing in on all-time highs. Has the Fed artificially juiced this market? We are going to explore that. Plus, new tough talk from the president on China. The administration reportedly planning to bar Chinese airlines from flying to the U.S. We'll go inside the new Cold War with China. And the growing demand to get away. As some COVID-19 fears recede, we'll show you the new vacation trend that's heating up. But we begin with this Zooming market, Zoom included, I guess. It is Zoom included, I think. Zoom on multiple fronts included. We talked about it yesterday, but still, let's talk a little bit about what's happening with the markets, because for those folks who are still watching to see what social unrest and the COVID-19 pandemic is doing to the markets, it's pretty crazy. The Dow Jones right now, just off the best levels of the session, up about 395 points. The S&P up about 1%. And the Nasdaq, the laggard, up half a percent. But I would note, as Kelly pointed out, The Nasdaq composite is just 2 percent away from its own record high that we saw back in February. Something to watch there for sure. Also, speaking of those Internet type stocks, this particular ETF, the First Trust Dow Jones Internet ETF ticker FDN, marginally lower on the day. But it did at one point hit a record high in trading today. That's big names like Amazon, PayPal, Netflix, you name them. And then check out these names because they have something in common. One thing is they're all home improvement. Home Depot, Lowe's, Sherwin-Williams, they make paint. The other thing, too, is at one point today, all of them get gold stars because, Kelly, they all hit record intraday highs at one point today. I will send things back over to you. Wow. And that's such a telling group. Home Depot, Lowe's and Sherwin-Williams, Tom Banks. From coronavirus to an economy on the brink to now a wave of unrest that some are comparing to the late 60s, this market has had everything thrown at it. But since the bottom in mid-March, it's only marched in one direction, and that is up. Is this rebound back to the highs warranted, or is it artificially induced by trillions in Fed stimulus? Let's dive into that now with Chris Harvey. He's head of equity strategy at Wells Fargo Securities. Chris, it's good to have you here. And what do you say to people who go, this is all just because of Fed uh, stimulus? Well, what I say to that is it's partly due to Fed stimulus. What, what we think it is, it's partly Fed stimulus. It's partly what we see with regard to the fiscal policy. And then it's the management of COVID-19. The healthcare system has done a very good job at getting on top of it. And then ultimately what we're doing is we're looking forward in time. And what we're seeing is we think numbers in 2021 will be better than 2020 and in 2022 better than 2021. And so we do see longer term growth. And ultimately, we think equity markets do go higher. Yeah, as you said, you definitely think the Fed is one part of it. And I just think this is an interesting angle to explore. You've got more and more people who believe that there's nothing fundamental about this rebound, that it's just because of the big government response. And that suggests different kinds of takeaways. They say, you know, you've got to look to alternative currencies. The Fed's debasing the money supply. This is a rally built on sand. It's not going to last and so forth. Um, what would you, how would you respond to all of that? So uh, a few things, Kelly. So very simple. Uh, very simply, what we see is equities are following the VIX, the VIX is following credit, and the credit is following the Fed. So if you want to boil it down, yes, don't fight the Fed. But what's going on? What's happening? The, the credit markets are liquefying. 
companies that need liquidity, that need access to capital, are getting it. And once they get it, what, what does that do to these companies? It makes them less risky. All else being equal, we should see multiple expansion, which is what we're seeing. The second thing that we talk about is this is not like, in some cases we can argue this is like 08, 09. But the big difference that we see in 08, 09, there was too much risk in the system. The credit market seized up. Banks' balance sheets were upside down and backwards. There was a lot of really bad decision-making. And ultimately, the system imploded upon itself. Here what we have is an exogenous shock running into a situation which wasn't bad. The capital markets, the economy was okay. Banks are much better than what they were before. You add significant amount of monetary fiscal policy, again, with a healthcare system Mm -hmm. or a healthcare um, system that that really did a great job on confronting COVID-19, you have a much better situation. And we think that numbers will ultimately go higher. And what we've been telling people is to buy it buying the lows, and now what we're telling people is the pain trade is not so much higher equities, but it's a rotation into value. Rotation into value, and I want to end there. So you guys have been rotating into value since early April. You said you went all in on that strategy, um, for, and now you're rotating uh, kind of as this plays out into small caps, which you call the next uh, or the new big thing. So for anybody who missed this historic rebound off the lows, you think there's plenty of opportunity over the next six to 18 months to get in on the small caps and and where else? That's right, Kelly. So we do think that there's great opportunity with small caps. If you look at small caps, they've underperformed on a one, a three, a five, a 10-year basis. We find good valuation in the space, getting back to the credit markets and the Fed. You are seeing a, a lot of liquidity, which is good for these smaller caps because it means more risk on. And, and ultimately, what's going to drive these things higher, you're going to see earnings revision in another 6, 12, 18 months. Many of these companies are tied to the economy. The economy will come back, and these are the ones that are going to benefit the most. Um, where else we find? We're finding a lot of opportunity across the board, but really it's just with smaller cap, it's with value, contrarian opportunities and very beaten down names. Right. That's where the real opportunity lies. Chris, great stuff. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Chris Harvey of Wells Fargo Securities talking through the markets with us today. Well, meantime, local governments are reeling from massive losses, first from the coronavirus shutdowns and now from violence and unrest. The CARES Act dedicated $150 billion to shoring up these budgets, but many cities are still waiting for that money. Elon Moy joins me now with more. Hi, Elon. Hi, Kelly. Well, it's really a tale of two cities when it comes to federal aid. The biggest cities were able to tap directly into that $150 billion fund. That includes places like Los Angeles, Phoenix, Chicago. New York alone got $1.5 billion. The rest of the money went to the states, which were then responsible for passing it on to smaller jurisdictions. But in more than half of states, 28 of them, that hasn't happened yet. And that's leaving thousands of municipalities still waiting in limbo. One of them is Greenville, Mississippi. This week, the city began furloughing workers in the midst of a $3.5 million revenue shortfall. They're stopping work on construction and sewage projects. And they're also cutting back on overtime for police officers and firefighters at a moment when they're also reeling from the national unrest. But Kelly, local leaders have also been very careful to separate the cost of the pandemic from the price of the protest. They say that there is a bipartisan push for more aid from Washington um, in order to make sure that they don't jeopardize the political waters.
Yeah, no, those municipal budgets are going to be under so much strain, especially if people start to leave the cities for the suburbs, like we were talking about with Ron Christie earlier this week. Elon, we're getting some headlines uh, somewhat related to this. It's about the Federal Reserve's backstop for state and local governments through a liquidity facility. A couple of interesting things in here. They're saying governors will be able to designate two bond issues in their state uh, where revenues will come from, you know, public transit, airports, utilities. What do we know about oh, the Fed's plans here? Yeah, one of the concerns around the Fed's uh, municipal liquidity facility was the same one that's around this uh, CARES Act $150 billion fund, and that is it was only available to states and to the biggest players. And part of that was simply administrative. Um, the Fed and uh, Congress and Treasury were working so fast to try to get these programs started that they couldn't handle an influx of applications from all the thousands of smaller towns, smaller cities, smaller counties that are out there. So they started with the big actors, but there was a lot of concern on Capitol Hill and amongst the amongst the state and local governments that it simply was not broad-based enough. And this is something that uh, Chuck Schumer, the lead Democrat uh, in the Senate, has talked directly with Jay Powell about, the Fed chairman. Um, and so it's something that we're seeing the Fed take into consideration as they try to get the money into every corner of the economy. That makes sense because they're saying these new rules will guarantee that all states will have at least two cities or counties eligible regardless of population. Interesting. Elon, thanks so much for all of that. We appreciate it. Elon Moy is in Washington for us today. We've got a market flash on Snap. Julia Borson here with that. What's happening, Julia? Snap shares moving lower on the company, saying that it will no longer promote the president's comments in its Snapchat Discover uh, platform. The company issuing a statement right now saying that it does not, we are, quote, we are not currently promoting the president's content. We will not amplify voices who incite racial violence and injustice by giving them free promotion. On Discover, racial violence and justice have no place in our society, and we stand together with all who seek peace, love, equality, and justice. In America, Snap, Snap's shares now trading down. Uh, looks like they're now down about 2.5%. Guys, back over to you. You know, no surprise, uh, considering what Evan Spiegel wrote in his memo earlier this week. I encourage everybody to read it. It's really fascinating. Uh, he, it goes through a deep analysis of what he thinks is wrong with our culture, and this move fits perfectly with what he thinks differentiates Snap from some of the other social platforms. Julia, thanks so much. Yeah, ab go ahead. Absolutely, go Kelly. Ahead. Thanks go ahead. So much. What were you going to say? Oh, no, I was just going to say that um, what was interesting is sort of putting Evan Spiegel's approach in contrast to Mark Zuckerberg and also Jack Dorsey. Um, you know, Spiegel really taking a stand in terms of the need for a lot of change in corporate America. He advocated for reparations. He talked in a, in a lot of detail about many different things that he thinks need to be done in terms of taxation, et cetera, to address racial injustice. Yep. GDP, he hits on everything. <laughs> Julia, appreciate it. Julia Borson with the news on Snap there. She mentioned the shares a little lower on that announcement. Taking a quick break. Coming up, the tensions with China heating up again. New flight restrictions between the two countries now. We're going to look at the superpower showdown with a reporter who was recently kicked out of the country. Plus, the NBA has its plan for restarting, but a number of other leagues are still in limbo. We'll look at the economics of returning and what's holding everybody up. And crisis in America. We'll speak with the first African-American CEO of a Fortune 500 company, Franklin Reigns of Fannie Mae. We'll talk civil unrest and housing inequality in America. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. President Trump's administration is banning Chinese passenger airlines from flying to the U.S. beginning on June 16th, if not sooner. This is as the Transportation Department says Beijing is preventing Delta and United from resuming service between the two countries, saying, quote, we will allow Chinese carriers to operate the same number of scheduled passenger flights as the Chinese government allows ours. In other words, none. The new book, Superpower Showdown, how the battle between Trump and Xi threatens a new Cold War, takes a deep dive into U.S.-China relations to see how we've reached this tipping point. For more, I'm joined by the report behind the book, Bob Davis, senior editor at the Wall Street Journal, and Ling Ling Wei, a senior China correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. It is so great to have you both here. Anything that I know about journalism, I learned from watching the two of you, you know, way back in the day. Um, it, it's really a pleasure, and congratulations on the book. And Bob, let me start with you. So, you, you know, do we go, can we call China an enemy? What, what does this issue with the flights uh, at this juncture tell us, you know, especially in the wake of coronavirus and everything going on? You know, what is going to happen with the trade deal? What, what, where are we at in the relationship, do you think? No, I mean, I think the flights are just one more irritant on top of irritant on top of irritant. I wouldn't call them enemies. I would say we're getting to the point where we're adversaries, though, certainly. Um, you know, the trade deal um, had uh, created a truce in the trade war, but it was quickly overtaken by COVID, by Hong Kong, by one thing after another. I mean, we're at a point now where the two economies are disengaging from one another, not quite going to the decoupling that people talk about, but definitely disengaging. And Ling Ling, it's fascinating in the early pages of the book to read about how I think it was your grandfather was marching along Chairman Mao, you know, on the long yes. march. And then you wind up leaving China, becoming a U.S. citizen, giving up your passport. You still then go to Beijing as the journal's correspondent and, and now have just been kicked out of the country, which I can't imagine, you know, that means you can't be with your family, you know, among among many other losses. So what has this experience been like for you and how does it feel for you, the relationship between these two countries? Thank you, Kelly. Great to be on your show. Uh, yes, um, for a long time, I've always looked at myself and people like me, you know, who straddle both countries as, you know, living examples of how uh, the close relationship between the U.S.-China can benefit individuals. I remember uh, in early 2011, when I went to the Chi Chinese consulate in New York, applying for journalist visa in order to go back to China and do uh, practice in independent journalism, you know, the visa officer just looked at my application and said something like, oh, have, we have never seen applications like yours, because, you know, he was, she was referring to my Chinese background. So anyway, so um, there are a lot of people who are like me, because the years of engagement between these two economies, who straddle between these two countries. But by now, um, you know, I have become the collateral damage mm -hmm. uh, for the worsening of the relationship. Uh, many people in China uh, call people like me today, Pao uh, Hui, which means bomb ashes. So wow. it just quite, um, you know, um, for me personally, it's just, um, it's an amazing experience. I lived the uh, history and, uh, but I also, you know, it's heartbreaking to leave China. But I also felt very fortunate in a way that, you know, I not, not only lived uh, the uh, history, but um, 
being able to write about it um, yeah. and, you know, just in this book, uh, also just, you know, part of the reflection of what we uh, individually have been going, uh, have, have gone through over the past few years. And the reporting is phenomenal. I mean, you, you go into Politburo meetings during the trade negotiations over the trade deal on the Chinese side, explaining some of the caution and where it came from on the U.S. side. I mean, it, it's it's really fascinating stuff. And Bob, you've also, you know, reading about your dad and how he, you know, when it was one of the patenters of a garment bag, right? I mean, here's someone who is original American manufacturing in Brooklyn. You know, that's taken away from him. Like you said, he didn't necessarily have any bitterness about it. But what do you think the next chapter of American manufacturing looks like if we are in this disengaging from China? Well, I think, you know, um, the fundamentals of the manufacturing remain. I mean, the U.S. is a high-wage country, is going to be a high-wage country. Uh, some of the companies in China will certainly expand their production outside of China. They were starting to do that before the trade war. It's accelerated with the trade war, accelerated again with COVID. But I wouldn't expect to see much of that come back to the U.S. Maybe things like... Um, Pharmaceuticals, where we see we're particularly dependent on China for, you know, essential essential materials, but there aren't that many of those kind of companies. So I think you'll see, you know, continuation of, com of companies expanding, not necessarily leaving China, but expanding outside of China. But I wouldn't expect to see uh, them coming back to the U.S. And we're certainly not going to see a garment industry in Brooklyn again. Right. So last thing, Bob, what message do you want investors to take away from reading this book? How should they be thinking through the relationship between the U.S. and China, the, you know, the trade deal, the t you know, and so much of the rest of that? I think they have to just be aware that um, this isn't a trade war that started with Donald Trump. It's not going to be a trade war that ends with Donald Trump. Uh, you know, we're in a long term um, period of the country's um, disassembling from one another, derailing one another. And that's something you're just going to have to factor in. That's kind of the new reality. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. And both of you kind of walking through that experience, too. Thanks for joining me. It's really great to see you. And congrats again. Thank you. Thank you. Bob Davis and Ling Ling Wei. The book is Superpower Showdown. Still ahead, the road to recovery is seeing a little more traffic. The CEO of vacation rental company, Vacesa, says they're seeing a big pickup in demand already. The CEO joins us ahead. Plus, a sweet tune for investors. Warner Music is seeing pretty strong demand as it hits the tape. The shares are up about 15%. We'll look at what it means for others waiting in the wing. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. And as we head to break, take a look at shares of Square. They're rallying again today, up more than 4%, hitting the highest level since the fall of 2018. We're back in two. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. 
That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's take a look at the markets. And we have quite a rally on our hands today. The Dow is up 417 points, close to the highs of the session. 1.6% gain. Once again, the blue chips, the industrials are outperforming the others. So the S&P is up one, about 1.15%, 35 points, 31.16. And the NASDAQ is up two-thirds of a percent, respectable as it approaches all-time highs. The NASDAQ 100 was within half a percent of that mark as of the open this morning. Here's a look at some of the sectors. Again, it has that rotation to value feel to it financially. Financials are up almost 4% today, and we should note the 10-year Treasury yield has really rocketed. That's definitely given some impetus to the moves there and to the whole market. Industrials are up 3%, real estate higher. Healthcare is the only sector in the red by about four-tenths of a percent. Let's look at some of the individual movers. We have a chicken price-fixing issue on our hands. Tyson's and Pilgrim's Pride are sharply lower. Pilgrim's Pride was halted earlier after news that chicken industry executives, including the CEOs of these two companies, have been indicted for price-fixing. You have Tyson down six. 6% now, Pilgrim's Pride down 11.5%. And finally, American Eagle shares are soaring after they said traffic at open stores is exceeding expectations and there's strong demand online. Those shares are up more than 15% today. And let's leave on AMC. Volatile session. The company saying it has substantial doubt about its ability to continue through the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, the theater chain down about 1% today. But you can see shares already at a very low level, about $5.5 a share. Now over to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. George Floyd's family visiting the memorial where he died in police custody. Their attorney expects the other three officers involved in Floyd's death will be, quote, put behind bars by tomorrow. Earlier, Minnesota Governor Tim Walz and his wife visited the site where Walz added the message, Justice Now. Meanwhile, Reuters reports the officer already charged has a new lawyer, replacing one who withdrew for health-related reasons. Thousands of protesters are gathering outside UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's Downing Street office today after marching from Hyde Park to Parliament Square in a Black Lives Matter demonstration. HSBC says one of its top executives in Asia has signed a petition backing China's imposition of a national security law on Hong Kong putting the U.K.-headquartered bank on Beijing's side of the fight over the future of that territory. Lots of moving parts in the news today. That's the news update this hour. Kelly, I'll see you again in an hour. Yeah, it should be an hour-long news update. I know. <laughs> I'm all for that. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll see you later, Sue. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm. Professional sports leagues still face a lot of challenges around how and when they can return to play. But when it comes to the NBA, Houston Rockets owner Tillman Fertitta says that day is coming soon. We're going to play basketball at the end of July, and, and I think that's everybody knows that. It's out there. Um, it, it's going to happen, and is it going to be 16 teams or 30 teams or 22 teams, which uh, we have a discussion uh, tomorrow or Friday uh, to, to discuss all this and, and come to the final conclusion of exactly what we're going to do. And indeed, the NBA is closer than many other leagues to making a return. Where's baseball? For more, let's bring in Eric Chemi with the very latest. What do we know, Eric? That's right, Kelly. So Tillman had it right on. The NBA, one of the leagues leading the way in terms of having an actionable plan to restart. Just a short while ago, reports out laying out the details of the NBA's restart plans with 22 of the 30 teams going to Orlando to get ready for the season to restart in late July. That will be followed by a full set of playoffs ending around mid-October. 
NASCAR is another example. They've already held races in the last couple weeks, and they're now researching ways to bring fans back into the racetrack. Pro golf, they're about to restart next week. One key theme with all of these leagues, there's better unity with the economics. On the other end of the spectrum, you've got Major League Soccer, Major League Baseball. Fights over money have been rampant and caused huge disruptions to getting started. Soccer was on the verge of a lockout just a couple days ago, but earlier today, they seem to have come closer to an agreement for them to get started. Baseball is at risk of losing its entire season. Owners, players, agents, and executives, they're all bickering. They're leaking emails to the press. They're blaming one another for the impasse. Baseball and soccer, they're more reliant on in-person ticket sales and stadium revenue, more so than basketball or football. So baseball in particular, also they don't have a salary cap like the other leagues. Another factor is the decades-long bitterness between baseball owners and the players' union. You don't see that in the NBA. So right now, all these other leagues are on their way back. Baseball, they're still stuck in the dugout, Kelly. Do so you think less likely uh, than more that this season even happens at this point? It's certainly a possibility because normally they have 162 games and originally you saw a version that was about 80 games or half the season. Then the player said, what if we do 100 and something games? And the owner said, what if you just do 50 games? The 50 is pretty close to zero when it comes to baseball. So there's a lot more problems there. It's very different than with basketball, as you've seen, the players and the owners have found a way to work together to get going. Yeah, fascinating. And, and when we think the NBA is, are we talking weeks away, days away at this point? First game should be July 31st, so they'll get to Orlando real soon and start their training camps. Wow. Eric, thanks very much. Eric Chemi there. Coming up, as civil unrest continues across America, we'll speak with the first African-American CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Franklin Raines of Fannie Mae will talk about what he thinks corporate America has to do now. And former Microsoft CEO and L.A. Clippers owner Steve Ballmer was on Squawk Box this morning. He shared his thoughts on what CEOs should do amid this crisis. There's so many things going on, and I think it's up to our CEO community to be part of lifting that up. I mean, one of the big issues has been, it's all been black leaders historically talking about these issues, and it's time for, for white leaders to, to stand up and, and really speak and encourage action. Welcome back. A lot of action in the bond and foreign exchange markets today. Let's get out to Rick Santelli. Rick, the financials are up almost 4% and bond yields, the 10 years, gone up uh, multiple basis points. Yes, absolutely, Kelly. As a matter of fact, uh, back to early April on 10s, pretty close to two-month highs, as you see on the chart, up a half a dozen basis points. 30-year bonds at 11.5-week highs, going all the way back to mid-March. And if you look at boon deals intraday, zoom, 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 they ended up below minus 40. The ECB meets tomorrow. This is going to be one heck of an important meeting, especially since the euro currency just popped over 112. That's a three-month high against the greenback. Kelly. Back to you. All right. Those are your headlines. Rick, thanks so much. Rick Santelli drawing our attention there. Meantime, America's CEOs are speaking out against economic inequality as protests break out across the country. Earlier on Squawk Box, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan said, here's what still needs to be done. Things aren't going to quiet down. They shouldn't quiet down on terms of making the economic progress in the, in the core social progress we need to make here. If you go back 50 years ago when the United States was... Uh, in very tough circumstances around these similar issues. It's 50 years later. There's twice as many people working. There's, the United States has made great progress, but still we haven't fixed some of these issues, and it's time to fix them. It's not enough money. We need a lot more money from a lot of other people, but it is a meaningful change in the, the trajectory of what we were doing in health, jobs, training, skilling, and uh, small businesses and housing. 
Joining me now is Franklin Raines. He is the former CEO of Fannie Mae. He was the first African-American CEO of a Fortune 500 company and President Clinton's Office of Management and Budget Director. It's great to have you here, sir. Welcome. Thank you. You know, this was a point that Don Peebles made the other day as well, that if you look at the Fortune 500, you know, there's very, very few African-American black CEOs. What would you say are the steps to ameliorate that? Well, the, the problem of uh, black CEOs is just a microcosm of the overall issues around race and, and corporate life and, and, and public life. And that is that there are many, too few opportunities uh, for African-Americans to rise to the top. Uh, to have the opportunity to serve in leadership positions. And this goes back to the origins of the issues, not just for CEOs, but for average people. And that is that we come from a history, uh, 150, 160 years ago, the majority of, of white Americans believed that African Americans were less than human, uh, believed that white supremacy was, was the way of the world, believed that white privilege was well-earned and deserved. Uh, so we have made progress since then, but that progress has still left us with, with millions and millions and millions of people who harbor those same views. And to, we have to deal with that by confronting it directly. And what would that look like, you know, across companies? I mean, there's kind of that aspect of it. There's also the aspect of public investment and what nature that could take. It'll take both uh, private and public investment. At the corporate level, there are four things that we did when I was at Fannie Mae and, and that uh, we think made a difference. One, make changes in your business. Uh, we made particular outreach to minority communities trying to raise the home ownership rate um, amongst uh, minorities. Second, confront racism. Uh, we had a corporate uh, uh, just judicial system uh, that allowed for the adjudication of any grievances on a very rapid uh, basis. Uh, the third thing we did was training. Uh, we didn't bemoan the fact that there weren't specialists involved in the secondary mortgage market. We made them. So we had uh, entire classes uh, for uh, minorities in tech uh, who had been undergraduates as liberal arts graduates. But we made our own tech workers by, by investing uh, in them. Uh, and the last and maybe more, the most important is making sure that you audit your decisions to make sure that they don't reflect bias. Go back after you've made your compensation decisions and check to make sure that there's not implicit bias reflected in those decisions. I'm curious what you make of the housing market today. Obviously, a lot of those gains in home ownership were eroded after the financial crisis, and some say they were unsustainable in the first place. Uh, what do you make of the landscape today? Well, I think it's very inhospitable to uh, not only African-Americans, but to uh, average Americans. Uh, owning a home is the way that most people develop wealth. Uh, it is the uh, way that uh, for years and years and years, people have been able to pass something on to their, to their children or pay for their education. But we learned a wrong lesson, I think, in the, in the housing crisis. We blame the poor and we blame minorities for the housing crisis, when in fact the loans that went bad were predominantly loans that had been made to investors uh, who were speculating in housing, not living in the housing, but speculating in housing. Uh, people who were draw taking uh, their capital out of their housing, not pe people who are putting capital into housing. And so we need to rethink those policies because when you undercut housing, you not only deprive people of a place to live, but you also deprive them of the single best way for them to be engaged in savings and investment. 
We've also been talking about the pattern of migration that is starting and probably will accelerate uh, people who can leave the cities, leaving them after they've been through coronavirus and now some of the uh, violent protests. What would you, your concerns be about those migration patterns? Uh, you know, the whole idea of white flight may be coming back to the fore. Well, it's not just white flight. The, the, the kind of violence that we've been seeing is, is also frightening uh, the black middle class. Mm -hmm. uh, so those who have the means are looking around to see should they leave. Uh, and I think that the, this violence is going to leave a scar on, on black communities and uh, urban areas uh, for years to come. It took 20 to 30 years for Washington, D.C. to recover from uh, the destruction in 1968. Uh, so th this has got to be met with uh, significant improvements in life in urban areas. Uh, years ago, I, I worked uh, with cities and states who were in deep financial trouble, people, cities where people thought would never come back. city of Cleveland uh, was given up for, uh, for being lost. But by investing uh, both private investment and public investment uh, in the city, we're able to reattract people to the city, and I think that can be done again. Private investment and public investment. We've got to get away from this notion that somehow we are overinvested from the public standpoint in our cities and in our people. Uh, we are way underinvested, uh, and, and that is reflected in some of the problems that we see, such as in Flint, such as in our education systems. Uh, we need to invest in people. We need to invest in, in the physical uh, capital, and we need to invest in the environment. When we do that, cities will again become uh, the attractive places uh, that uh, to live that yeah. they've been for the last 10 to 15 years. Well, and, uh, you know, it really makes me think if it would take 20 or 30 years uh, for Washington to recover from what happened in the 60s. Hopefully it's not on that degree this time around. Uh, Mr. Raines, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Franklin Raines is the former CEO of Fannie Mae. Coming up, the flight from the cities to the burbs is picking up in the wake of the COVID outbreak and this unrest. Vacation rentals are also seeing a huge uptick in demand. We're going to dig into those numbers next. And as we head to break, take a look at JD.com. It's hitting 52-week highs today. The exchange is back in two. Welcome back. Travel and hotel bookings have been picking up. The question is, could civil unrest derail that trend or could it actually accelerate it? Seema Modi joins me now live with more for us. Hi, Seema. Hi, Kelly. While vacation rental bookings are down about 60% year-to-date, we've seen a recent rebound, up 40% in the last week of May compared to the same week last year. And that data, according to SunTrust, now demand is particularly strong in non-urban markets about 60 to 80 miles away from big cities. So West Hampton, Park City, Beverly Hills, Sag Harbor, and Palm Beach in Florida. Prices are starting to go up in select markets. The average daily rate at a vacation rental, vacation rental in Beverly Hills about $1,000 a night compared to $450 in May of 2019. A rental in the Berkshires has gone up to $171 a night compared to 133 last May. So is this a lasting trend? Let's bring in Matt Roberts, the interim CEO of Vacasa Vacation Rental Platform and the former CEO of OpenTable. Matt, welcome. Uh, why do you think you. vacation rental demand is increasing at a time when stay-at-home orders are being lifted? Yeah, I think there's a several uh, factors. One, everybody's really eager to get out and, uh, and to travel again. They really want to get out of their house. Uh, and they want to be in a home 
just not their home. Uh, and there's also a lot more flexibility because of all the remote working right now. Uh, kids' activities are being canceled. Uh, but there's really a, a preference, a, a share shift, if you will, to professionally manage vacation rentals like Vacasa because cleanliness is emerging, uh, drive to rural destinations is emerging as a strong consumer preference. What do you make of the civil unrest that's playing out across many different cities, Matt? And does that accelerate the shift from cities to, to suburbs? Yeah, well, it's incredibly sad what's happening right now. And I feel very uh, sad that we're still talking and having to deal with this uh, at this stage in, in our society. Uh, I don't know if it's accelerating the demand. We actually have seen this uh, for for uh, last few weeks uh, in terms of the surge in vacation rental demand. I think in general, people are just looking to get away and to connect with other people. So what do you think then happens to cities like uh, and like New York City and Las Vegas that are so dependent on that tourism revenue? Yeah, I think that the, the trend for the near term is a little bit challenged for the, the major cities. Uh, we're seeing, for example, we're seeing a four-time spike in uh, vacation homes near lakes. Uh, people want remote destinations, drive-to destinations. In fact, our our drive-to uh, is down, you know, the distance that people are even uh, driving is down sort of 27% year over year. So people are looking for that very close proximity uh, and for some remote destinations. Yeah, and demand is so high that now prices are going up in select markets, which we just showed uh, everyone, especially in Beverly Hills, parts of New York. Does that make sense to you, Matt, that prices are going up at a time when unemployment is high and we're living in an economic recession? Yeah, I think it's just an innate uh, need of people to travel and to connect. And that travel is going to, you know, that that uh, need is going to be there. Uh, we're actually seeing uh, May was just a, a great month for us. We had a 62% year-over-year increase in our, our revenue per home. And so we are seeing that, that surge in demand as well. And the breadth uh, is happening as well. We used to, in the, the start of the crisis, we were in around, let's see, 357 unit uh, cities, rather. And now we're up to 740 different cities uh, most recently. So the, the demand is, is, the, is pent up and it's happening for us, which is great. And what about the duration of stays? Are these just weekend rentals or are you starting to see people, you know, book houses for two to three months at a time? Well, we do more short term rentals, so we're not seeing the two to three month uh, volume, but we are seeing a, a big uptake in, you know, midweek uh, bookings. Uh, again, with that flexibility of remote work, it allows people to, to, to get away and work anywhere. And so they're just choosing to go with their families to some of these uh, fantastic uh, destinations that we offer. Some of our, our more popular uh, places right now are in, you know, in Panama City Beach, Florida, Galveston, Hilton Head, the Gulf Shores. Uh, those are just some examples of, of locations. Yeah, interesting perspective. Uh, Matt, thanks for bringing it to us. Matt Roberts, interim CEO of Vacasa. Kelly, back to you. Yeah, and Seema, thank, thank you. you. Interesting stuff. We appreciate it. Matt, our thanks as well. Still ahead, shares of Warner Music Group are up about 15%, 16% now in their first day of trading. We'll look at why they went public now, despite the challenges they're facing from the COVID-19 pandemic. That's next.
Welcome back. The IPO market is getting a boost this week with Warner Music and Zoom Info going public. Shares of Warner Music started trading a short while ago. They're up about 16 percent on the session. And Julia Borson is looking at why the company decided to go public now. Leslie Picker is here with what you need to know about Zoom Info ahead of its first trading day tomorrow. Julia, let's start with you. That, well, Kelly, Warner Music shares are surging today, and that increase is driven by the boom of streaming music on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, and others, helping the company's revenue grow 50% over the past five years. Warner Music saying in its S1, quote, in addition to paid subscriber growth, we believe that over time, streaming revenues will increase due to pricing increases as the broader market further develops. Now, with live concerts on pause, Goldman Sachs projecting live event revenue will drop 75 percent this year. Warner's strength in streaming outweighs its more limited exposure to concert promotion and merchandise sales. The good news for Warner, Goldman Sachs also predicts that the number of streaming users will quadruple in the next decade. Worth noting that Warner Music's market cap is now over $14 billion. That's about $11 billion more than what the company was bought for nine years ago. Kelly? Wow. Julia, thanks very much, Julia Borston. Now let's turn to Zoom Info, the other Zoom, <laughs> the other other Zoom, Leslie, uh, trading to, uh, slated to start trading tomorrow. We've got some news on pricing. Hey, Kelly. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Zoom Info raised their price range yesterday morning, if you recall. And I'm hearing now from two sources, actually, that they're aiming to price a dollar above that new range. So that means the IPO would come in about $21 a share, raking in nearly a billion dollars. Now, that's barring something dramatic. So final decisions will be made today after the market closes. Zoom Info, of course, is not to be confused with the Zoom video conferencing service that has been widely used during the pandemic. Zoom Info uses artificial intelligence to process data that can help support corporate sales and marketing teams and their customer outreach. Now, the company is backed by TA Associates, Carlisle, and 22C Capital, none of which are selling shares in the IPO at this time. Zoom Info is still founder-led. Henry Shuck is the CEO and started the company while he was in law school by putting 20 $25,000 on his and his co-founders' credit cards. So it seems to have uh, paid off, uh, yeah. regardless of what the pricing will be. It's no, definitely a multiple of $25,000. Yes, <laughs> not to encourage credit card borrowing, you know, but I mean, <laughs> I love those stories, Lizzie. I really do. Let me ask you something a little bit out there. Do you think it's possible that Zoom Info will benefit from the fact that Zoom is doing so well? I mean, is it just possible that they're like, you know what, maybe not a bad time for a company with Zoom and its name to go public? I mean, anyone who kind of follows market psychology would tell you yes. I mean, we saw what happened with Zoom technologies when Zoom uh, video conferencing went public uh, last year. So absolutely it's possible if people start seeing the momentum take place with Zoom Info. They've been using Zoom. They think it's the same thing. Now, this one is ticker ZI. Zoom, the video conferencing that people have been using, that's ticker ZM. So for those of you out there watching, uh, you just make sure that you can distinguish between the two when you look at the markets tomorrow. Absolutely. And we look forward to see uh, how that one does. Leslie, thanks so much. Thank you, Kelly. Leslie Picker with the details there. And with public offerings making a comeback, we're going to talk to the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, which counts nearly 70% of last year's venture-backed IPOs as customers, about this boom, about falling rents in San Francisco, and whether he's worried about companies leaving Silicon Valley en masse. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of SBB Financial, that's the parent company of Silicon Valley Bank, are on pace for their best quarter in nearly four years, up more than 40 percent. But they're still down about 10 percent on the year. Even as the Bay Area rebounds from the pandemic, will looting and unrest add to a wave of people leaving for other parts of the country? For more, let's bring in Greg Becker. He's president and CEO of SVB Financial Group and the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank. Greg, it's great to have you. Welcome. Great. Great to be here. Let me just start because it's kind of been the theme all week, this idea of people leaving uh, places like San Francisco, maybe even like Silicon Valley, uh, taking their companies elsewhere. You know, are you worried about that? Well, for us, um, Silicon Valley is a key part of our market, obviously based on our name, but we're also all over the United States and uh, around the world as well. So um, we we think some of that is going to happen, right? Some of that is when you hear uh, the Twitters of the world and companies talking about having employees um, locate from anywhere. Uh, the same can be true with uh, startups themselves, right? So we expect some of that to happen. Happen, And if it happens, I think um, in a lot of ways, the cost of living is going to go down in Silicon Valley and, and still allow it to be a robust market. But if it goes to other parts of the United States, um, we have offices there as well. So uh, for us, that really won't have that much of an impact. Would you yourself ever be part of that? Like you said, you know, you do operate in other parts of the country and there might be people who say, I can't afford to live and work here. Yeah, we've had a lot of discussions, as most companies have had, about what is this situation? What is this environment that we're, we're living through right now, working uh, from home? And what does that mean for the future of our business? And so do I expect to see in the future that we're going to have more remote working at, at SVB? The answer is uh, yes, we will. I think we're having a lot of discussions about how much that will actually uh, be. But um, I think it's going to be a, a significant amount. And uh, I think a lot of companies are having those conversations. And I think it'll be good for um, a lot of communities, um, including um, how companies operate, our ability to attract talent from all over the United States is going to increase in ways that uh, it wouldn't have if this didn't occur. Yeah, for sure. Um, it, let's ask, uh, talk a little bit about these public offerings, which have all of a sudden picked up this week. You guys obviously have a lot of clients in this space. Um, kind of dig into it uh, from your point of view. Why now? Is there a sense you have to kind of go while the market's good or is it this is just the beginning of what could be a much bigger flood? What do you think? Uh, well, still, it's a very small number of companies when you go back and think about 2019 or other other periods of time where there was a lot of activity, right? You can only look at, on the tech side, just less than a handful of venture-backed tech companies that have gone public or planning to go public so far in the very, very near term. Now, on the healthcare side, we also are in that area. Um, there's been a, a fair number of IPOs this year. Um, we're counting around 20, if you will, and they've actually performed well um, once they have gone public. So, we, we kind of look at it in the tail of two cities, um, healthcare doing really uh, well or pretty healthy right now. And on the tech side, I think it's going to be momentum is going to build. You need a little bit more time for markets to stabilize a month or two longer, I think, before you start to see a bigger wave of companies. So we're paying attention to that. Hmm. Um, but we certainly hope that occurs. Interesting. So we're, we're much more at the beginning, uh, which makes sense. We're, we've had two, I think, you know, two high profile yeah, exactly. ones anyway. Um, you know, a lot of companies have been speaking out about the social unrest this week. Are, are you guys among them? Absolutely. Um, you know, first and foremost, it is just a horrible situation. What happened to George uh, Floyd uh, being killed in Minneapolis and, um, you know, and, and, and clearly we're all talking about this and how we hope this is, is different, um, how change really will occur. Um, we certainly think about it in, in three ways. Um, one is what we can do as a company to support 
um, you know, black organizations um, around the United States, um, whether it's the NAACP and so many other ones, we're, we're supporting them. Um, secondly, we think about it from the standpoint of what we're doing internally with our own inclusion and, inclusion and diversity. And it's not just one thing. It's We've been doing it for a while, but um, this just reinforces the fact that we have to double down on that. And the third part is we're working on what we call access to innovation, which is um, bringing more individuals, uh, young adults, um, minorities who don't typically get exposed to the innovation economy. And we certainly believe it's the best place to be. It's the best place for jobs. And we want to give more exposure to that. So we're doing a lot in that area, and we only expect to do more. Are you concerned about the kind of, you know, I say this as in the direction San Francisco is heading. I'm kind of just referring to the way that the streets have become, the way that people don't feel safe. Um, you know, some of the more violent nature of the protests has also brought that uh, kind of home for people. Yeah, um, you know, it's 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 tough, right? Um, I know a lot of people have spoken out about violence and, and clearly violence is not the answer on one hand. On the other hand, um, I think it's understandable. Um, when you see this for so long where nothing has changed, um, it's a little bit of what do we expect is going to happen. Yeah. And so really not advocating for violence, um, but I'm hoping last night we certainly saw that things had calmed down a little bit, more peaceful protests, and certainly hopefully that will continue. Greg, thanks so much for your time today. Absolutely. Greg Thanks, Becker, Kelly. CEO of Silicon Valley Bank. Before we go, I want to issue a correction. Earlier I said that the Tyson Foods CEO was indicted as part of the price fixing for the chicken industry. That is not correct. He is not mentioned in the indictment. I want to make sure we get that in. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.